Good evening, my name is Julia Feingold-Covey, and as a board member of the Community Scholar Program, I want to welcome you to this evening's program. The Orange County Jewish Community Scholar Program, as many of you, I hope, know, is a community-wide, cross-denominational endeavor committed to bringing a strong and transformative program for adult Jewish learning to Orange County. And Dr. Kilman is the CSP's fifth annual one-month scholar-in-residence. In that capacity, he is teaching and lecturing throughout Orange County, as well as elsewhere in Southern California through mid-February. I encourage you to pick up one of the blue CSP brochures outside for details of other learning opportunities with Dr. Kimmelman. Rabbi Reuben Kimmelman is a professor of classical Judaica at Brandeis University. Previously, Professor Kimmelman held the position of five college professor of Judaic studies at Amherst College and was a senior scholar at Klal. He has also taught at Mount Holyoke, Smith, Trinity, and Williams Colleges, as well as the Jewish Theological Seminary and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He has a PhD in Religious Studies from Yale. Professor Kimmelman has published widely in journals of scholarly and popular interest on Bible, history, ethics, liturgy, and current affairs. He is the author of the Hebrew book, The Mystical Meaning of L'Chadodi and Kabbalat Shabbat, and the audiobook, The Hidden Poetry of the Jewish Prayer Book, The What, How, and Why of Jewish Liturgy. He's also engaged in writing a book on the meaning and history of Jewish prayer, and another one on terrorism, war, democracy, and other issues in the Jewish ethics of power. Dr. Kimmelman lectures frequently at academic conferences, at synagogues, and national Jewish organizations. He has served as a scholar in residence for many groups, including the former UJA Young Leadership Cabinet, the Wexner Heritage Foundation, the GCC, JCCA Biennial Conference, and the General Assembly of the United Jewish Communities. Please join me in welcoming Professor Reuven Kimmelman. I assume this lecture is the first lecture in honor of Spencer Gilbert. So may his memory always be a blessing. Our topic tonight is the Jewish ethics of war. How many have heard a lecture on the subject of the Jewish ethics of war? How many have heard a lecture on the subject of Jewish just war theory? I'm not surprised that you're not responding in the positive. One of the most amazing secrets of Judaism is how unknown it is. There are people who give lectures on a Western just war theory, not knowing that basically they talk about Christian just war theory, when there's a Jewish war theory developed about the same time, frequently in some of the issues several hundred years earlier, also part of the Western ethical tradition. For some reason, it's not included, basically because it's unknown. This is best illustrated way back in the Gulf War. In the Gulf War, the early 1990s, George Bush, the father, not the son of the Bush, decided to go to war. And he argued publicly that going to war was a just issue. This was unprecedented in American wars. Most American wars have been fought in self-defense after they've been attacked, or they've been wars offensively. As far as I know, in the history of war, we never had a discussion of just war theory before we went to war. 
Probably the reason Senior Bush adopted this position was the fact that he recalled in the Vietnam War the major opposition to the war starting about 1964 primarily began at universities and among clergy. That is, religious circles and university circles were the two great since moral opposition to the war. Apparently trying to circumvent this opposition, hoping it would not rise again, he argued for the cause of going to war in Iraq or against Kuwait, that is Iraq's attack and conquest of Kuwait, as part of a just war theory. Why did he do that? Well, he couldn't argue on the grounds of security, meaning that America was under attack. And you could argue, why should anybody care who controlled the oil of Kuwait? After all, Kuwait and Iraq are the exact same countries, historically speaking. They're ethnically, religiously, linguistically identical. The only reason you have two countries is whenever the British lost a country, they took part of it and made a separate country of it. They did the same thing with Transjordan. When they lost in Saudi Arabia, they created a country called Jordan, in those days Transjordan, split the Palestinian mandate in two, and created the Hashemite kingdom. They did a similar thing in Kuwait. So a friend of mine had a son of his who was studying in China when the war broke out. And somebody walked up to him and said to his friend, tell me, are you Jewish? There was a small, you know, small town of China, a couple million, and a person had never seen a Jew before. And he said to my friend's son, are you Jewish? And the friend says, yes, I am, but how did you know? He said, well, you speak such, you speak such good Chinese, you must be Jewish. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, probably from frequenting such similar type restaurants, but maybe that's the reason. <laughs> he then said to me, isn't it true, he said to him, that George Bush, the president, is also Jewish? Now, George Bush has been accused of many things but not of excessive Yiddishkeit. And clearly his former Secretary of State, Baker, did not think that to be so. So he said, why would you think that George Bush is Jewish? He said, very simply, why would any American president care about the difference between Iraq and Kuwait, which are indistinguishable? If he takes the oil, he still has to sell it. So who, why would America care? The only reason America would care is because Israel is involved in this, and therefore George Bush must, must be Jewish, Otherwise, why would he take America to war to fight an Israeli cause unless he were what? Jewish. Interesting Chinese logic. Now, when George Bush called people in at the time, the bishop who represented the Catholic Church, which in American circles, not everywhere throughout the world, is quite pacifistic, opposed the going to war against Iraq on just war theory. Bush argued differently. What he did not do is, as far as I recall, any Jewish spokesman who was called in on the similar subject. That is, what is the Jewish contribution to just war theory? It's quite well known among some Jews, but has very little uh, resonance in the public arena. We hope to begin to transform that process tonight. If you look at the page in front of you under just Jewish ethics of war, I'm gonna distinguish between the classical just war theory, Jewish just war theory, give you a little bit of the historical development explain the distinction, and then conclude what difference would it make. If you have the first page in front of you, which says the Jewish ethics of war under categories, you'll see that according to Judaism, there are two types of wars. Chicago is the second largest Polish city in the world, yet never had what? A Polish revolt. Boston is one of the major Irish cities in the world, yet never had what? An Irish revolt. Brooklyn, some people think, has a majority Jewish population. 
many of them revolting, yet never had what? A Jewish rebellion. The assumption is people only revolt on native soil. Therefore, what was a serious policy? If you transplant populations and everybody is on foreign soil, you'll never have the type of nationalistic fervor which foments political rebellion. The result of this was the loss of the 10 northern tribes, which either went to England or Japan. We don't know to this day. Some people think it was the British because it was a British, means every man had a circumcision, but probably not the etymology of the word. Okay, now, <clears throat> because of that, the Talmud argues that all ancient nations lost their political identity as they lost their ethnic identity. If that is true, then none of the original nations of the land of Israel are around anymore. Since none of the original nations are around, they all lost their identity, even by the time the Greeks and Romans appeared on the historical scene. Therefore, if there ever was a commandment for extermination, it becomes inoperative because the subject of extermination is no longer subject to identification. Therefore, practically speaking, the rule becomes inoper uh, inoperative. Therefore, in contemporary Jewish ethics, it's never cited as a precedent because the original inhabitants, if it ever were a precedent, are no longer around. This same principle applies to the second category. The second category called against Amalek has two interpretations. One interpretation is Amalek is just like every other ancient nation, which lost its identity, and therefore the rule no longer applies to it. The second interpretation is Amalek stands for a national group whose public policy and has the means to exterminate the Jewish people. And therefore, all the rules of Amalek apply to them. In the 20th century, there's been a clear example of such a case, and that would, of course, be the case of Nazi Germany. By 1943, in the late 1943, there was a major debate between Himmler and Eichmann on how to use the trains on the Eastern Front. Himmler argued that they should be used to supply materiel for the, for the retreating German army to mount a counterattack. Eichmann argued they should, the tra same trains should be used to transport Jews to the camps. The debate was finally resolved by Hitler, who sided with Eichmann against Himmler. It is a basis of this data that a famous historian called Lucy Davidowitz wrote her famous book, 1933 to 1945, The War Against the Jews. She argued the Second World War was really smoke but the real fire was to allow the possibility of the extermination of the Jews. And the evidence for that was when push came to shove, that is, whether you can make a major military effort or use the same effort to kill the Jews, and if you couldn't do both, what is the preferable target? Hitler went for the killing of the Jews. So clearly the Nazis would qualify that as a group publicly committed and having implemented the extermination of the Jewish people. Next category is number three. <clears throat> the number three is wars of self-defense and preemptive wars. Now, self-defense is what everybody legitimates as a cause for war. The only debate in Judaism is how do you define self-defense? All authorities agree that if you already are attacked and you're under attack, then you have a right of self-defense. And they base their argument on the domestic analogy. In political theory, the domestic analogy is, as an individual has a right to defend himself if he's under attack, then a nation has a right to defend themselves if they are under attack. And the right of self-defense is extrapolated from the individual situation 
to the national situation. That's called the domestic analogy. What they disagree upon is what is called preemptive war. What is preemptive war? If an enemy is on your border and has the means and the intention of attacking, meaning they've already galvanized their forces and you know their intention, but have not yet crossed the border, and at that moment nobody is getting killed, are you allowed to mount a preemptive attack? And is that preemptive attack described as a defensive war and not an offensive war? If you call it an offensive war, you have no problems. If you call it a defensive war, there's a question of definition. Can you have a defensive war if when you went to war, nobody was getting killed? but only anticipating they getting killed because they're ready to kill you. So if a man is carrying a gun down the street and is not shooting it at you, would you have a right to kill him just because he has a gun and the means, even if he wants to kill you? There are those who argue that the distinction between have, uh, um, starting to kill you and about to kill you is so fine that they define it one category. And therefore for them, preemptive wars and defensive wars are identical. Now, I repeat again, preemptive war is not thinking 10 years down the line. We're talking about an enemy which is on your border, has the means of attack, and also has the intention which you've discerned. The two together and its location, if you attack them now, one school of thought says that's a defensive war, and the other school of thought says it's still an offensive war because it can only be defensive if you have no control over the timing. But if you have control over the timing of the attack, because you're not yet under attack, then it's really an offensive war, not a defensive war. What is the distinction and why am I making this difference? Because if something is an offensive war, not a defensive war, then it comes under the category of the second, page, second column on that page called Milchemet Rashut. The word Rashut means authorization. That means the war is not permissible unless it has been authorized by the Sanhedrin. And our system would be the Senate. Now, a defensive war can be decalled by the chief executive alone. Why? Because at that moment, people are getting killed. And it's the obligation of the chief executive to defend the citizenry. Therefore, when he goes to war, the function of going to war is stopping his own citizenry from getting killed. But a preemptive attack, at that moment, nobody's getting killed. You only anticipate somebody getting killed. Well, then you can wait. And as long as the king can wait or the executive can wait, because at that moment, nobody is getting killed, then he has to apply to the Sanhedrin, in our case, the Senate, to seek their approval. He does not have the right to drag his country into war unless it's a clear act of self-defense. By self-defense, I mean, at this moment, people are getting killed, and the function of the counterattack is to minimize your people from getting killed. So this, who, who weighs this? This, the Sanhedrin. Now if you look on the right-hand side, according to Jewish theory, there are also possibilities of political wars, even wars which are economically motivated. So for example, according to standard categorization, David, the king's expansionist wars into Syria were considered reshut, that is, authorized wars, not defensive wars. And therefore, for them to be properly authorized, he needed what? The okay of the Sanhedrin. If he did not get the okay of the Sanhedrin, then the war was considered by ancient Jewish political theory an invalid, close to immoral war.
Now, what do you have to decide before you declare a war? So, of course, a king, before he declares a war, has to determine its effectiveness. That is only the case in a defensive war. In other words, if I get attacked, we counterattack. It's the king's obligation to say, encountering attacking is better than absorbing the attack. Because it could be, in counterattacking, more people on both sides will get killed. Not only the enemy side, of course, but even your side. So if I defend my country, and the result is that more people get killed, then by not by sending them to the country, then the question is, what is the function of the counterattack? If the counterattack is self-defense, and self-defense means I'm defending lives. But if the counterattack produces more death than by not attacking, how is it justified in terms of self-defense? Okay? But all other wars in Judaism need the approval of the Sanhedrin. Now, why do they need the approval of the Sanhedrin? And what is the Sanhedrin supposed to weigh before they give their approval? So if you look at the listing, the first thing they have to weigh is probable losses. What are the chances of more people getting killed or less people getting killed? Two, they have to weigh chances of success. What are the, what are the chances that the counterattack will really be effective? Third, they have to weigh is the will of the people. Fascinating criterion. Is the people behind this war? And finally, in their opinion, does the good exceed the evil? Now the question is, why, in Jewish political theory, does the Sanhedrin make that judgment and not the executive? And the reason for that is, because in Jewish theory, if I am an interested party, called in Hebrew a nogea bedavar, that disqualifies me from making a judgment. Because once my interests are at stake, my interests influence my judgment. And I am frequently the last person aware of how my interests influence my judgment. And I frequently can think I'm doing something out of ethical reasons, when in actuality, I'm doing them out of economic reasons, but my self-image will always project my ethical image above my economic image. Since people have a capacity for self-delusion and self-deception, which is almost unlimited, the worst thing we want is going to war based upon a king's assessment if the chief executive frequently is the major beneficiary to going to war. Why? Well, the first thing almost all wars do initially is they consolidate your political base. So, for example, the war between Iraq and Iran way back 25 years ago, in the 80s, went on for eight years. It was initiated by Saddam Hussein. After the fifth year of the war, when over a half a million people had got killed, and most of the war was fought in southern Iraq in the cities of Basra, and there was not major progress either way, the Iraqis, under Saddam Hussein, tried to sue for, for peace. At that time, the head of Iran was Khomeini. It was the fifth year of the war. It lasted three years longer. Everybody asked the question, why didn't Khomeini agree? So people say he actually did agree. He said, I'd be glad to make peace with Saddam Hussein if you will deliver his head on a silver platter. Apparently Baghdad had a shortage of silver platters, and that policy was never implemented. Why did Khomeini therefore not agree otherwise when nobody was winning the war and the most people getting killed were young, late, uh, older teenage Iranians? The answer many people give is Khomeini was trying to consolidate his political basis. The best way to consolidate a political base is to go to war because then opposition to the government 
is understood as opposition to the country. And therefore, you can galvanize both religious sentiment and political sentiment to consolidate your political base. We saw what happened in this country after 9-11, where opposition to government policy was understood by many people as what? Anti-American. And if that could take place in a democratic culture, all the more so it could take place in a non-democratic culture. And therefore, wars are frequently self-serving for chief executives because of their capacity to consolidate their political base. Since the king or the chief executive can benefit by going to war, he is disqualified from making the judgment of whether it's worthwhile to go to war. By worthwhile, I mean weighing possible losses, weighing chances of success, ascertaining the will of the people, and measuring that the good exceeds the evil. So therefore, in clear, in a clear defense of war, we allow the king to make the decision because at that moment, people are getting killed. And the counterattack is to minimize killing, and the chief executive's responsibility is to protect his citizenry. But if at this moment, nobody's getting killed, and I'm only anticipating the future, and going to attack somebody will get killed, the chief executive cannot make that judgment. He can call for war, but it has to be approved by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is also involved because in going to war, most countries adopt a command structure, meaning authority goes straight up the central spine, and agencies like the Senate or the Sanhedrin begin to lose power because power gets centralized through the chief executive. We all saw that happen in the last three years. Another reason why the Sanhedrin is called upon to make the issue, is it worth going to war? Because they have the most to lose. If nonetheless they think it's worthwhile, the assessment is probably correct. The next thing involved in the Jewish ethics of war is the actual conduct of the war. So if you look at the chart on the page, we have three factors. First, you can't go to war without making overtures of peace. And some authorities even extend this to a defensive war, meaning if we have been attacked at that moment, if you can still an overture of peace as a response, you don't counterattack until the overture of peace has been rejected. Others say it only applies in a discretionary war, but not if you've already been under attack. Nonetheless, it demands that alternatives be tried. I underscore alternatives be tried because there are many people who read the Western just war political theory argue that you can only go to war as a last resort. There is no such category in Jewish thinking as last resort. For the simple reason, nobody knows which resort is the last resort. You can't use a criterion which is not applicable. You do demand that you've sought out alternatives, and you've explored those alternatives, and you've explored peace. But no person with only a human mind can ever know what, whether any resort is the last resort. So you can't use a criterion of last resort because that precludes judgment. You can use your criterion, what is the evidence that you sought out alternatives to going to war? That's why we want evidence. Has there been evidence of overtures of peace? That's number one. Number two is in the actual conduct of the war. The first is no wanton destruction. Now this idea of no wanton destruction, if you look at the source <clears throat> on number three of the footnote, it all comes from the verse in Deuteronomy 20.10, which says, when you approach a town to attack it, you shall offer it terms of peace. That is a source for the evidence, for the criterion 
that one must first seek out peace before what? Attack. But look at number four. I requote the verse in front of you. It's Deuteronomy 20:19. It says following. When in your war against the city, you have to besiege it a long time in order to capture it, you must not destroy its trees, wielding the axe against them. You may eat of them, but you must not cut them down. Now listen to this expression. Are trees of the field human to withdraw before you into the besieged city? And the answer apparently is no. Only trees that you know do not yield food may be destroyed. You may cut them down for constructing siege works against a city that is waging war on you until it has been reduced. This is the verse which is cited in Jewish political theory to prevent what is called wanton destruction. What symbolizes wanton destruction is the destruction of fruit trees. You besiege a city. There are fruit trees outside the city. What have you done? You've taken their fruit. Now the fruit does not return for another whole year. So why would you destroy the tree? The only reason for destroying the tree is after the siege is given up, they, the people who have now surrendered will no longer have what? Food to eat. But they've already given up. So you've allowed to go to war. What you're not allowed to do is vindictive action. Vindictive action means to punish the people after they've what? Surrendered. By what? Starving them. How would you starve them? By cutting down their trees. Now, you can cut down, for example, oak trees. Why? Because an oak tree can be used for an armament, a battering ram. In other words, the destruction which advances the goal of victory is permissible. Destruction, which is vindictive, meaning to punish the people after they've surrendered, that is not permissible. So therefore, wanton destruction is destruction which does not serve the goal of victory. Destruction which serves the goal of victory is part of going to war. And also they learn from this the doctrine of the immunity of the non-combatant. Because the line says below, is our trees of the field human to withdraw from you? So they argued based on that verse that if they were human and humans could withdraw from you, you couldn't kill them. From this they derive the doctrine of the immunity of the non-combatant. The second place they derive it for is a law in Deuteronomy which says when you besiege a city, you may besiege it on three sides, but not a fourth side. You must leave one side open. Why must you leave one side open? So that those who want to escape can escape. Which means if you have a besieged city and people escape without their arms, and they escape, and not in order to regroup, but they're scattered in different directions without their arms, you're not allowed to shoot them in the back. Because why? They no longer present a threat to you. On the other hand, if you see they're escaping, the purpose of which is to regroup, then of course you can kill them. You are to be ethical, but not stupid. Similarly, if they escape with their arms, that means what? They haven't given up. They just hope what? To regroup and fight again. Then you should kill them. But if they clearly escape and no longer present a threat to you, no threat, no defense, therefore no longer voice of self-defense, you don't have a right to do what? To kill them. This is called the doctrine of the immunity of the non-combatant. So I was lecturing at a place called Rice University in Houston. And I was giving this lecture in front of a religion and philosophy department. At the end of the lecture, the woman who introduced me, who I did not know, she said, we want to thank Professor Kimmelman for lying to us. A little bit surprising. And then she went on to say, what Professor Kimmelman said must be wrong 
because the immunity of the non-combatant does not come into Western political theory to Hugo Grotius and therefore the 15th century. So how could the rabbis of the Talmud have had it a thousand years earlier? Quite a remarkable comment. I did not know this was true. After she said this, I explored and found out it came, was true. And then I said, but we have a verse in the Bible, and the, uh, the development of the theme is already found in the Midrash, about the second century, but it's codified in Maimonides already in the 12th century. And Hugo Grotius was a Hebrew, Hebrew um, Christian scholar. He probably read Maimonides. So I sent her the data. She never responded. No, but I did learn from this that the idea of the immunity of the non-combatant seems to be a distinctive Jewish contribution to Western political theory. It gets codified in Jewish law in the 11th century and gets involved in Christian thought not codified to the 15th to the 16th century. But it's based upon an interpretation of Jewish law already found in the 3rd century. Okay. Now, the immunity of non-combatant does not mean the non-combatants don't get killed. It means that non-combatants never become the primary target. In any war, there is corollary damage. Nobody ever kills only combatants. But there's a lot of thing in targeting non-combatants and targeting combatants. In the targeting of combatants, sometimes non-combatants get killed. If more non-combatants get killed than combatants, it creates an ethical problem which needs evaluation. Now, I come to the last category, if you look at the bottom, called exemptions. As far as I know, this is one of those remarkable aspects of Jewish political theory, especially the ethics of war, called exemptions. And I'm quoting to you a verse from Deuteronomy, chapter 20. It says the following. Is there anyone who has built a new house but has not dedicated it? Or planted a vineyard but has not harvested it? Or spoken for a woman in marriage but has not married her? Let him go back home lest he die in battle and another do it. Very strange exemption, right? What are the three exemptions? Well, you just built a new house, but what? Did not dedicate it. You planted a vineyard, but not yet harvested it. You spoke for a woman in marriage. I guess you were, you were engaged, but what not? Not consummated. These three categories are exempt from warfare. Now think about this. It's quite remarkable. After all, at what age in your life do you think most cultures do people first get married, first build a house, and first plant a vineyard? Would you say they're over 70 years old or closer to their physical prime? Much closer what? To their physical prime. So who would want these people at this moment? The army, because these are the type of people who serve in combat units. After 45, you generally serve in what? Reserve units or supply units. Even after some places at 35. But from, let's say, 16 to 25 would be people in their physical prime. They would serve in combat units. Now, why would any system have such an absurdity of exempting the people who serve in combat units? Really quite remarkable. The question, is it idealism or is there any element of realism involved here? So if you look at this, why would you exempt people from 16 to 25, let's say? Not anybody from 16 to 25, but specifically those who did what? Built a house but not dedicated it, planted a vineyard, but not harvested it, spoken for a woman in marriage, but not what? Consummated it. Well, let's think for a moment. If I had just built a house, or I just, married, just engaged with a woman, and my country was under attack, what do you think I would do as a strong 21-year-old? I'd probably feel what? 
the greatest desire to attack my, to defend my country. You know why? Because I have the most to lose. Therefore, I would probably volunteer for a combat unit. So you have a case where, under these cases, he'd probably say, I don't want to activate my exemptions. The opposite. I want to go to war to do what? To protect my home. Because after all, my home will be destroyed. My wife will be ravished. I want to make sure what? That doesn't happen. But let's say the government is going to war and it's fighting a war which is, I think, unnecessary. And I just planted a house. I mean, just planted a vineyard. Or just what? Engaged a woman. Well, if it's an unnecessary war and I could die in battle, I get the most to lose now. So if the war was necessary, I have the most to defend. If the war is unnecessary, I get most to lose. So what would people do? They would activate their exemptions. Now you can imagine the bureaucracy which is created when people start activating exemptions. Just compare the response of many American men in the Second World War and the Vietnam War. In the Second World War, my father, Allah Shalom, was a doctor during the Second World War. He told me stories where people would say, Doctor, please do not disqualify me. They begged to be enlisted. They didn't want to be seen walking the streets in their physical prime, not what? Enlisted. Indeed, they felt there was an army and an enemy they had to fight. Now compare that with many university students, 1966, 67. How many people know people in the room who cut themselves? Play nuts, went to Canada, anything they could do to what? Now, is it true that the people of the 1960s were less courageous than the people of 1940s? Or was the major difference is, 1940s, the vast majority of Americans believed we have to fight this war. Indeed, if we don't, they'll do what? While the Vietnam War, as it waged and went on and waxed longer and longer, more and more, especially college students from 64 up to 67, clearly by 68, no longer believed what? It was worth my life losing this war. Now this is a fantastic criterion because it means, according to this theory, you could have a president declare war, a Senate approve it, and it sputter for a lack of popular support. Now why does popular support count so much? It's not so much one man, one vote, as one soldier, one vote. Meaning, if I am demanding of you to give up your life, that gives you a certain moral weight which others don't have. Now let me explain this. We have a fascinating rule in the book of the, in the, in the Bible. If a man, for example, is overwhelmed by debt, one of the options, instead of throwing people to a debtor's prison, according to the book of Exodus, he can become an indentured servant for six years. And he works off the debt. Now even if the debt exceeds his value for six years, he cannot be enslaved for more than six years. At the end of the sixth year, he goes free. Then the Torah asks, what happens if on the seventh year, the man says, I want to remain in slavery. I don't want to go free. Why should I join the homeless if I can work and get three square meals a day? And he decides, I am loyal to my master. So the Torah says he must make this statement in court to make sure it's under duress. Then what the court does, not his master, is they pierce his ear. Why do they pierce his ear? So according to the Talmud, the reason they pierce his ear is because the ear should have heard God at Mount Sinai say, you are my servants. And this man has rejected divine servitude by accepting human servitude, which means he has rejected divine sovereignty and rejected and accepted human sovereignty. 
so that the Torah considers it theologically offensive for a human being to fritter away his freedom. Now, if to fritter away your freedom is theologically offensive, then all the more so to fritter away your life. Right? Your life is not your own, according to Jews. You just can't give it up. Therefore, apparently, to go and join an army, you have to be convinced that it's worth the possible sacrifice of your life. But you can't just fritter it away. So what happens here is not one man, one vote. But if your life is on the line, you're giving your decision is given a certain moral weight. And what do we allow you to do? Activate these exemptions if you feel you want to. And what would convince you? The unnecessary of the war. Because I, my land, my vineyard, or my family is not being what? Threatened. Therefore, why should I what? Now, this theory, therefore, puts another check, what I call a system of checks and balances, on the king going to war. We not only have it approved by the Sanhedrin, but ultimately, the assessment of the will of the people also means what? The people are backing up the Senate and believe it's what? The risk, the worth, the worth, worth, the risk of their lives. Now, follow closely. I'm not saying one man votes and sends another man to go fight. That frequently happens. I'm talking about the man who's called upon to fight should be persuaded of the worthwhileness of the task. And therefore, that plays a role. Therefore, in a non-defensive war, that means a war in which we're not actually under attack and members of our own citizens are actually getting killed on their own land, the citizenry reserves the right to express its approval on the government policy. And how would it do so? By activating these exemptions, which in a bureaucratic system could end up impairing mobilization. And therefore, you could argue in Jewish system that if enough exemptions were activated to impair the mobilization process, that would cast significant aspersions on the validity and therefore the morality of the war. Now, when you take all these things together, that is, the distinction of biblically mandated war and a Sanhedrin-approved war, look at the categories of distinction political and self-defensive war, focus also upon even if a war is set properly approved, it must be properly conducted, therefore it must have any overtures of peace to begin with, it must minimize wanton destruction, it must allow for the immunity of the non-combatant, which means you don't target, you don't specifically target uh, non-combatant populations, and then it has to assess the fact that it has the will of the people. When all these are involved, you've created the Jewish political theory and the just war theory. In conclusion, this system distinguishes itself quite significantly from standard Western political theory in two to three areas. Number one, as I mentioned before, there is no criterion of last resort. And secondly, no criterion of proportionality. The reason for that is these are not subject to measurement. What does it mean to go to war and say proportionality? Now, what you do prevent is wanton destruction, specifically. What you do prevent is targeting non-combatant populations. Those are prohibitions. But proportionality, we don't know how to assess the thing. The second thing is, in standard political theory, they will tell you that just war theory demands what is called proper authority. And there's a major debate among contemporary proponents of just war theory. Is the proper authority the United States government in America, or is it the United Nations? It's an interesting theory among, in other words, once you have the United Nations, is that the ultimate authority? And were America to go to war without the approval of the United Nations, would it be, by definition be an unjust war? 
or does authority stop at sovereignty? And of course in America, sovereignty means the executive with the approval of the Senate. What we've added to this element is the approval of those called upon to risk their lives. And this, as far as I'm not found in any other political theory. So that means you need the approval of the king, as it were, the approval of the Senate, as it were, and of course what? You have to assess the willingness of people willing to fight for that cause because it could end up what? Costing them their lives. Thus, I've articulated for you just war theory, the Jewish dimension, its contribution, and why they should become part of the public marketplace of ideas. Thank you. We have time for questions, yes? Okay, let's open up for, um, I'll tell you, before we ask a question, I'm gonna, let's do a little exercise. I'm gonna do an exercise on the Israeli wars and the American wars, and you tell me, are these a mitzvah war, the mandatory war, or the approved war and the conduct? So let's take American wars, Second World War. Right, because we were what? We were under attack, right? Okay, therefore, what did Roosevelt have to do? He didn't have to do it, but he got it. He got the resolution of the Senate. In actuality, since we're already under attack in Jewish theory, he could have done it on his own, but he got the Senate. Good. The Korean War. The Korean War is clearly what? A discretionary war, right? Because America itself was never attacked, and it was clearly fought validly or invalidly for political reasons. But the Korean War never got the approval of what? There was never a Senate approval on the Korean War. Okay. That's what they called it, a United Nations police effort. You know, a couple hundred thousand police, maybe. Okay, next. The Vietnam War. The Vietnam War, was America under attack? Now, you could argue, right? You could argue, as some people argue, that we were stopping communism. There was a domino theory. Now, that may be right or may be wrong. That's not my point. But that would be a political interpretation, and you're allowed to go to war for political goals, but then you have to convince what? The Senate, which, by the way, never passed the resolution. The Tonkin resolution was not the, what, the constitutional resolution. And you have to assess what? Popular support. Now let's go to the fourth war, the Gulf War, the previous Gulf War, not the one going on right now. The Gulf War, interesting, it was clearly what? An optional war. It was fought for economic or political reasons. Nonetheless, it got the approval of the Senate. Ten Democratic senators, including Gore and Lieberman, joined a Republican president, even though Senator Nunn, the major defense figure for North Carolina, did not, and he got the approval. Secondly, the war was fought with very significant popular approval. And thirdly, even more important, not only popular approval, but people who were mobilized for the war, there was not significant opposition. Had there been significant opposition, to such a degree, it could have impaired the mobilization process. In Jewish theory, that would have cast serious Moral doubt. But apparently, since the war was won so quickly, it didn't take place. Okay? Now, I'm all you're holding up for the next war, but hold up one minute. Now, let's go to Israel. 1948. What would you call it? A mitzvah war. Why? They were under attack, right? Four countries attacked Israel in the month of May of 1948. Good. Now, the Six-Day War. Well, the Six-Day War is a really interesting question. Now, the Six-Day War, right, the Six-Day War, there was an economic blockade of Eilat, which some countries consider what are called a cause of belly, a reason to go to war. 
But, and not only that, the enemy was on your border. Not only that, the enemy had announced his intention. Not only that, the enemy had removed the UN soldiers. So the soldiers from India and southern Gaza were removed by the Egyptian forces. Nonetheless, at the time the Six-Day War broke out, there were not Israelis being killed by this war effort. Therefore, there was some time to make that decision. So if you're a strict constructionist, then you would say, sorry, this is not a defensive war because at this moment, what? We're not defending ourselves. If you're a loose constructionist, you say, this is what? This is a defensive war, but a defensive war includes preemptive war. And what's preemptive? Follow closely. They're on our border, they have the means, and they've announced their intention. You have all three of them. And they would have argued what? But since there was timing involved, the, according to the strict theory, then the head of the Israeli government should have sought the approval of the cabinet and the Knesset, which in this case they did. Now, the next war was the, oh, the Six-Day War, by the way, not all four Arab countries participated. Jordan came in on the second day of the war. Lebanon did not participate at all because his pilot called in sick that day. Now the Yom Kippur War. Yom Kippur War is undeniably. You could argue the Six-Day War, but the Yom Kippur War, they're what? They responded to attack on the north and on the southeast. Egypt and Syria attacked. So clearly that's what? That would be considered a mitzvah war, correct. What about now the difficult one? The Lebanese incursion. Shalom Agalil in the early 1980s. In 1981, we, the Israelis, excuse me, attacked Lebanon. The original intention was to wipe out the PLO in the 44 kilometers from the border up to the Latani River. Now, was that a mitzvah war or a political war? At the time the war took place, was Israel being threatened? Now, it's true that people are shooting across the border, but it happens all the time. Katusha rockets right now, Katusha rockets are coming in from Lebanon, hitting Kiryat Shmona. But there are rockets today coming in from Gaza, hitting what? Close to Ashkelon. So, is that threatening the state? Are more people getting killed than killed, let's say, on the highways of Israel? I mean, we've got to make these criteria. Because if you went to war every time a single individual got killed, you'd be at war what? All the time. The other thing you have to assess is popular support. Now here's where this criterion became so significant. It is clear when the war started, there was overwhelming political support in Israel. Because most people thought it was a defensive war against the PLO. By the second week of the war, they crossed the Latani River, the 44-kilometer line, and moving on to where? Beirut. And what was the function? to change the political realities of Lebanon, to transform Lebanon from an enemy into what? An ally. By the way, it didn't work. It may have worked. Had so not been assassinated, we don't know. Nonetheless, at that moment, it became a political war, which means it's clearly what? It needs authorization. And authorization means not only the authorization of the Knesset, you also have to ascertain, is the popular support still there? Okay, that becomes part of the criteria to determine the validity of the war. Okay, now finally, let's look at the war now in Iraq. To apply Jewish political theory to American wars. The war going on right now, what would you call it? In Iraq. What? Uh, Afghanistan, it's, well, I'll get it in a second. Iraq war now. What do you think? See, even if there were WMDs there, right, called weapons of mass destruction, even if there were, were they in a position of what? Were they usable? 
Because that's the question, do you have something? Is there an intention? And are you a verge of what? On the verge of unity. This criterion of imminence is extraordinarily important. Don't tell me 15 years down the line. I mean, I remember in the 1960s, people said we should attack Russia and wipe them out. Right? Now you think of it, it sounds what? Totally absurd. I hear still people saying, let's attack China, only to take over the textiles. But also what? <laughs> Would be absurd. Correct? Good. Now, for example, I just got today a Thomas. Would you believe that? I saw a Thomas. It said, made in Taiwan. <laughs> a Thomas. I mean, no it, boy, are they smart. I'll tell you, they get all the fringe benefits of our religion. Okay, now, what do you say about the Iraqi war? Well, we, we were attacked. We were attacked by Iraqis? When were we attacked by Iraqis? Were we attacked? Would anybody call this a mitzvah war? Okay, but that just because it's not a mitzvah war doesn't mean it's an invalid war. We have to ask the other criteria. Now look at there. We have to weigh probable losses, chances of success, will of the people, good exceeds evil. Okay, now let's say you all, you are members of the Sanhedrin or voted for the Senate, which in California, if you're female and Jewish, is very possible. <laughs> Would you, and you were asked to vote on this war and you were asked to do the following thing. Weigh probable losses, chances of success, will of the people, good exceeds evil. Now, of course, you're very smart now, but when the original resolution went to the Senate, how many think they would evade if they said, that was my moral responsibility? To consider these four factors, how many would have given Bush the okay? How many would not have given the okay? Anyone want to argue the case? Can anyone give me an argument? We had not completed So when you say pursuing alternatives, you really believe there were other valid alternatives? Okay, so you don't believe the alternative, not the last resort, but the probable alternatives had not been exhausted, in your opinion, and therefore they didn't have the okay. Right? On the other hand, let's say they had all alternatives. Well, they, should they have gone to war? To do what? Why are we in Iraq? That we don't have any intelligence? Speak for yourself. What? Well, if you don't have intelligence, you may want to wait to get it. It's a possibility, right? Some people do that, right? Could you imagine a doctor operating upon you saying, I didn't have the intelligence? Okay? Now, where's fascinating here, let us say weapons of mass destruction was the original motivation. Okay? Let's say, who knows? I don't know. You know? I don't know. Maybe we do. Maybe it was? Maybe it is. I don't say I don't know. What's amazing now is, that's no longer the reason. What are we doing now? We are there to spread democracy. We're spreading what? The American way of life. Now, when's the last time people went to war to spread an ideology? The Crusades. You're probably right. Fascinating phenomenon. Now, Woodrow Wilson went after the war, said what? We're going to make the world safe for democracy. But he didn't start a war to spread democracy. The war was already going on from 1913 for four years before he intervened. And basically, he entered the war to save England. Okay? So to make the world safe for democracy was to save England. Help maybe would spread. But we have an unprecedented thing, and it's, all Americans should think about this very seriously. We are involved in using military power to spread an ideology which many Americans think is an ethical ideology. And we hope to do what? To spread democracy. Now the funny thing about it, up till now, nobody in America ever thought you spread democracy by going to war. 
Right? But now we have this position. And by the way, it may work. I'm not, I'm not taking a political stance up here. It could be that 30 years from now, if Iraq becomes a functional democracy, if it ever becomes that, then people look back and say, you know what? Bush was greater than Woodrow Wilson. Because when Woodrow Wilson failed, he did what? He succeeded. Now, by the way, 1946, nobody thought that Japan would become a functional democracy. In 1947, MacArthur imposed a constitution written by a bunch of Jewish lawyers on the Diet, which is what they call their parliament in Japan. And everybody thought he was nuts. By the way, most people never thought in 1946 that Germany would become a functional democracy. And yet, 50 years later, what? People will tell you that the Marshall Plan and Truman were some of the greatest things America ever did. Okay, so the jury, spelled both ways, is out on Iraq. Correct? So how are we going to assess it? Let's hear a final comment. We're going to conclude. Yes? Uh, I want to thank you very much because next week, one of the lectures is entitled Judaism and Terrorism. And thank you for inviting the audience to this lecture. <laughs> right? That is such an important topic. It deserves a whole subject because terrorism and war really are somewhat distinctive categories and they should not be totally confused even though there is some overlap. So thank you for inviting me back and thank you very much this evening. Oh, was there another question? Yes, please, sir. Right, so the first question was a non-combatant issue, right? Collateral damage. And the first, second one, first, and the first question was? Yeah. Uh, first, as far as I know, Kuwait was not an ally, meaning there had been a political agreement of mutual. Now, we had with NATO, at times we had with Cedo-Asia countries, but neither, by the way, neither Israel, as far as I know, nor Kuwait is legally an ally, meaning a treaty of mutual defense. So it doesn't apply here at all. Now, but let's say England had been attacked, which, which we do have with NATO, okay? Now, that is exactly why Washington was opposed to what is called entangling alliances. It turns out, what country do you think has gone to war more than any other country in the world since 1945? The answer is United States of America. The reason is because the United States has more alliances with more countries, primarily to contain communism, than anybody else. Okay? Nonetheless, that is a political decision. And as a political decision, to respond to an attack upon an ally, therefore, it's not a defensive, it's a political decision. So therefore, who makes the okay? The Senate, not the President. And the Senate has an obligation to ascertain the will of the people and also measure losses. Repeat? But it's not, in Jewish political theory, the, the bailiwick of the President to make that decision, because at that moment, American lives are not being lost qua American as opposed to, let's say, on some island or CIA. Get it? So if it is true and the Senate approves it and the Senate assesses the will of the American people and all these other factors, then it becomes a morally valid war. It still may be politically wrong. But the trouble is, a politically wrong war, we only know after the fact. It's like Monday morning. We all know after the war whether it was... Well, wait, wait, wait. It's not a command here. He was not under command to shoot pregnant women. He was under command to protect the men in his unit. That's his first military and moral obligation. This is what his commanding officer said. Okay, so I'm going to conclude by saying it's precisely this kind of excruciating moral reasoning which is required of us Jews in the public marketplace. Thank you. Outside there. Yeah, I think cookies too.